All right, we are back. We mentioned a few weeks back the the, fi- the end of the final run of the tremendous television program Silicon Valley, which appeared on HBO. The nice thing about our modern age is that those shows are still available to you if you wish to seek them out. And you might consider it. They're awfully funny. In the final show, they had some, some memorable cameo appearances from real people in the tech industry. Bill Gates shows up on screen briefly. And that final show leads me to an opinion piece which appeared in the New York Times from Kara Swisher. Its title was, There's a Reason Tech Isn't Safe. It's by Kara Swisher. It starts out as follows. Kudos to Uber for addressing harassment. Other companies should follow suit. Finally, I figured it out. It's a feature, not a bug. That old Silicon Valley bromide was at the center of the finale of this week's HBO satire, Silicon Valley, the show that has perfectly and hysterically skewered tech and all its weirdness for six seasons. Silicon Valley, from executive producers Mike Judge and Alec Berg, was always prescient and topical. But the last episode nailed the most important point that the series and its motley crew of geeks has made through its run. It's a point that explains a lot about where we are today with tech. You can't build a safe internet even when you try your hardest. The punchline of the series was the perfect metaphor for today's real-life digital landscape. A groundbreaking artificial intelligence platform called Pied Piper the actual product is called PiperNet, has become potentially dangerous. I should mention that I've made guest appearances on the show playing myself. So if you want to know why so much of tech has seemed to become even scarier, whether you read the report last week from Uber about sexual assaults taking place across its car-hailing business, or the multi-part series in the New York Times on how services like gaming and video platforms have become hunting grounds for pedophiles, or listen to numerous Republican politicians spew propaganda online about Ukraine meddling in American elections, let me break it down for you. Simply put, far too many of the people who have designed the wondrous parts of the Internet, thinking up cool new products to make our lives easier, distributing them across the globe and making fortunes doing so, have never felt an unsafe day in their lives. They've never had to think about bad choices because there have been almost no consequences of failure. They've never worried about losing their high-level status, living lives defined by the line on their company growth charts up and to the right, literally up and to the right. Despite all the fuss over everything from election interference to hate speech to disinformation to screen addiction to President Trump's toxic tweets, after a tough 2018 Tech shares in the S&P 500 are up more than 40% as 2019 comes to a close, way above the overall index. Amazon, up 16%. Alphabet, 29%. Microsoft is zeroing in on a 50% gain, while Apple is killing it at 70%. And Facebook, the social networking giant that has attracted the ire of so many for so much, up 53%. Big tech includes the most valuable companies on the planet. Two are in the trillion-dollar valuation club, Amazon and Microsoft. One coming close, Amazon, and another closer, Alphabet. Which is why I, says Kara Swisher, found it striking and laudable that it was Uber, whose shares have plummeted since its IPO in May, that was out front at year's end by delivering on its promise to publicly reveal all the unsafe incidents on its platform. Among the problems were shoddy background checks. How well or not the company vetted its drivers has been a long-running problem that its more recently appointed managers have been trying to fix. Uber's chief legal officer, Tony West, said the numbers are jarring, adding, what it says is that Uber is a reflection of the society it serves. Said Kara Swisher, 
While Mr. West has a point, humans often do act like beasts, it's one that the tech companies often rely on as a go-to explanation for misdeeds. When things go wrong, executives often point to the cruel world and say they cannot control how their inventions are used by the teeming masses and the inevitable malevolence. They often point out the bad acting is just a tiny sliver of the massive use of their products. All true, but that's actually the bug, not the feature. The real problem, which is perfectly depicted on Silicon Valley, is that thoughtlessness is a feature. Lack of reflection is a feature. A drive to grow at all costs is a feature. And most of all, the sloppy and lazy ways in which tech too often designs and deploys its inventions are the ultimate features. Uber has been the poster child for this. With its go-to damn the torpedoes ethos under the co-founder and former chief executive Travis Kalanick. While creating a product that hit the bullseye of a market need, it did so by flouting regulations meant to protect consumers, like doing those pesky background checks and crowing about how you had to drive fast to win big. Even now, Uber's chief executive is still cleaning up the mess and trying to put in place safety features that should have been there in the first place. He said to awkwardly bolt them on, of course, because the idea of thinking of safety first has never been at the heart of anything Uber or most of Silicon Valley does. So kudos to Uber for at least putting a mirror on the ugly part of its face and not looking away. Like all of tech, whether it is around issues of privacy, disinformation, hate speech, screen addiction, or the abuse of children online, the company probably should have thought about it at the beginning rather than after damage was done. Yeah, we'd have to agree. There, there's a downside to that, uh, that principle of you know moving fast and breaking things. What was that, Google's motto? One of those companies' mottos. All right, let's go from the New York Times to The Economist. In their December 14th issue, under an article titled Spooky, they have this to say. In October 2018, Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi journalist and critic of the kingdom's government, visited its consulate in Istanbul to secure documents. He did not come out alive. After initially denying responsibility, the Saudi government admitted that Mr. Khashoggi was killed in a, quote, rogue operation, unquote. Two months later, Omar Abdulaziz, another Saudi dissident, filed a lawsuit in Israel against NSO Group, an Israeli software company. Abdulaziz alleges that the NSO Group had licensed Pegasus, a piece of spyware that snoops on smartphones to the Saudi government, which had used it to spy on him and, through him, Khashoggi. NSA Group denies that its software was used against Khashoggi. In October, WhatsApp, an encrypted messaging firm owned by Facebook, also sued NSO Group, saying its software had been used to hack roughly 1,400 of its users. These lawsuits have drawn attention to a little-known corner of the cybersecurity industry. Most cybersecurity firms focus on defending clients from hackers and malware, but some, including NSA Group, as well as Gamma Group, an Anglo-German firm, and Hacking Team, an Italian one, which in April merged with another company to create Memento Labs, sell software to help governments access online data on persons of interest. Business appears to be brisk. The opaque nature of the market for intrusion software means the job of trying to compile figures falls mostly to academics and NGOs. The firms are coy about revealing their clients' identities, but in 2015, a widely reported data breach appeared to reveal a list of hacking teams' clients. The list included a Saudi spy agency and the Sudanese government of Omar al-Bashir, as well as the FBI. 
The industry's been around for a while. But documents leaked in 2013 by Edward Snowden, who worked for an NSA contractor, lifted the lid on America's electronic surveillance capabilities and gave it a boost. The industry's evidently been around for a while, but documents leaked in 2013 by Edward Snowden, which lifted the lid on America's electronic surveillance capabilities, gave it a big boost. Other states said, how do we get a hold of something like that? The leaks also pushed Western technology firms to encrypt more web traffic and instant messages, making existing forms of eavesdropping harder. Some private firms now offer governments that did not have the expertise to breach such defenses themselves the tools to do so. Many are staffed by former Western spooks. According to a leaked personnel roster obtained by the New York Times, Dark Matter, based in the United Arab Emirates, has hired several people who used to work for the NSA. Most of the companies say they assist law enforcement in fighting terrorism, drug smuggling, or other misdeeds. I guess they don't emphasize criticizing the Saudi royal family as a misdeed. David Kay, the UN Special Representative on Freedom of Opinion and Expression, has described the market for spyware as out of control and unaccountable. Economist notes that previous lawsuits in this area have foundered, owing in part to the high-tech international nature of the lawsuit. They note that even if standing can be established in a court, it's hard to procure evidence. And even then, it can be hard for some judges to understand what's being presented. Recent case in America, Mr. Kadane, which is a pseudonym for an American with links to Ethiopia, alleged the Ethiopian government had been spying on him and his family using FinSpy, one of the Gamma Group's products. A judge threw out the case on the grounds the alleged spying did not occur entirely within America's borders. But the increased publicity has put pressure on the companies uh, that produced this. In November, Ron Wyden, an American senator from Oregon, called for an investigation into whether NSO Group's products had been used against American citizens. We've got to stay on this topic. And going from the New York Times to The Economist, let's jump into an article in New Scientist in this same general area. It's titled, Inside the Information Wars. Says the subheadline in the age of fake news and digital manipulation, you are the new battlefield. Carl Miller reports from the front lines of information warfare. He describes an office behind barbed wire where everyone's wearing British green army camouflage. Says that the 77th Brigade is the British Army's unit for what it calls information maneuver and what everyone else calls information warfare using print and online media to change the behavior of hostile parties and prevent them from causing problems. Carl Miller notes that when he visited two years ago, everything was in motion. Construction was going on everywhere, but he noted that even then there was a sense that they were already too late. He goes on to note that amid all the intrigue and shadows, you have become the front line. Your opinions, your opinions, your values, what you hold to be true— Even the way you feel are all under siege, and it isn't clear whether anyone can do anything to stop it. An illustration of that fragility came in March 2019 when Facebook made an announcement. Among the billions of accounts, groups, and pages that inhabit its site and subsidiary Instagram, it identified a network of 137 engaged in what it termed inauthentic activity targeting the U.K., To the 180,000 people who followed all or part of this network, it would have seemed utterly unremarkable. On the one hand, nationalists were sharing slogans. Being a leftist is easy, one meme said. If anyone disagrees with you, call them a racist. But others in the network pushed a different angle. One account called for the leader of a pro-Brexit party, UKIP, to be charged with hate crimes. The vitriol and polarization would be 
familiar to anyone who has spent time on social media. The one key difference was that none of it was real. Neither the nationalists nor the anti-racist campaigners existed. Both were online masks worn by a single, coordinated, and hidden group. This ecosystem of fake identities, false voices, and deceptive groups was attempting to provoke broad social change. Its members pumped polarized messages to both ends of the political spectrum, not to change anyone's mind, but to confirm the belief their viewers already held. The aim was outrage, to make people angrier and angrier about the injustices they were already convinced were happening, to alter the way people behaved and thought they had lured them into a fake society that only existed online. This was the first time that Facebook had found a network specifically targeting the UK, and while it didn't say who was behind it, the culprit could have been almost anyone. Military groups, intelligence operatives, party political campaigns, extremist political factions, or even just technically savvy individuals have all joined the rush for influence and attention that has broken out in cyberspace, forming a background hum to many of our experiences online. The article goes on to note that the manipulation of information during warfare is as old as warfare itself, but it really took off during the Cold War, when both sides systematically developed tools to influence the public watching at home and abroad. Fake companies, front organizations, leaked letters, bogus journalism, planted conspiracy theories, and manufactured protests were all part of the ideological struggle. For the practitioners of these tactics, the arrival of the internet and social media was a spectacular opportunity. Here was an environment far more open than newspapers and television. Here were global forums for debate and discussion that were very easy to join and post in, and which were curated and shaped by algorithms that could be reverse-engineered, gamed, and manipulated. The platforms had also become increasingly personalized, serving up the information they thought users wanted, and in doing so, sometimes creating bubbles of hyper-partisanship. In the space of a decade, it became far easier, faster, and cheaper for people to mold the public with social media using networks like the one, using networks like the one Facebook had found. And it didn't take the resources of a state. Anyone could do it as long as they had a smartphone. Carl Miller then goes on to give us an example of how bad this can be that I think is worth quoting from. He notes, I met one such fake news merchant in a dimly lit bar in Kosovo in November of 2018. The man, who I'll call Bessar, told me his operation was all about pumping out content that, true or false, was so shocking that people couldn't help but be drawn in. Some stories were patently false, others simply clickbait. But for Bessar, that distinction was a waste of time. It's all nonsense, he told me. I don't even read this stuff. Click on any of Bessar's stories and you're taken to the money-making part of the operation. A former waiter, Bessar was now building and buying Facebook groups with huge audiences dedicated everything from evangelical Christianity to holiday destinations. He created thousands of fake accounts to rope in even more people. When we met, I judged he probably had more online readers than some UK broadsheets. Bessar isn't alone. He showed me a whole network of invitation-only groups on Facebook with memberships ranging from a few hundred to several thousand. They formed a kind of marketplace where pages with hundreds of thousands of likes were traded for thousands of dollars. Others sold fake likes or fake accounts or offered advice on how to get around Facebook's evolving enforcement. 
I found a fake news starter pack, complete with a collection of pages to get an audience and websites to monetize them. It wasn't just Facebook that was innovating. People like Bessar were too. Around the world, thousands are using the same tools to game and manipulate social media platforms on an industrial scale. For $3, you can buy a huge mega bot pack on a darknet, allowing you to build your own army of automated accounts across hundreds of social media platforms. Other services can manipulate search engine results, buy Wikipedia edits, or rent fake IP addresses to make it look like your accounts come from all over the world. There are even legend farms that you can recruit, giving you control of tens of thousands of unique identities, each with its own personality, interests, and writing style. Despite the power these rogue agents claim to possess, the harm they cause is purely incidental to them. Their biggest driver is profit. But he goes on to note the giants when it comes to propaganda and influence are the nation states. Their aim isn't profits, but geopolitics, and they work on a far larger scale. He goes on to give examples of how Russia got involved in, uh, in this sort of activity, directing it against Ukraine. Looking around the rest of Europe, they found that there were active networks of influence across a range of platforms in Germany, France, Poland, Spain, and the UK, all of which dwarfed what Facebook had found in March. The team estimates that far-right disinformation networks across Europe produce content viewed an astonishing 750 million times in just three months. The article notes that the creation of fake realities online can lead to violence. 18 false information shared on social media in Nigeria caused rioting and people to get hacked to death by machetes. In 2019, rumors of child abductions in France caused violence against the Roma community. In Myanmar, hundreds of soldiers posed as celebrities and national heroes on social media to flood it with incendiary comments about the Rohingya, again, leading to violence and conflict. The piece notes that the dangers are no longer physical. Coordinated groups can step right into the middle of politics in any country with an online presence, and this poses a problem that no state can answer alone. They note that while new treaties, laws, and sanctions are long overdue, platforms also need to change themselves. Peace notes that the tech giants have created places where it's far easier to create information than to tell if it's true, and easier to create a fake identity than to expose one. To fix this, platform engineering will need to change, whether through forcing more identity checks, slowing down how information circulates, introducing cooling off periods, or challenging far more of these accounts that are behaving suspiciously. In the meantime, states will continue to slug it out in the theater of information. The 77th Brigade will continue to grow, and every military around the world will build its own equivalent to try and meet the threat. Yet the real challenge isn't to join the arms race, but to avoid it. If information is a theater of war, what does de-escalation in it look like? Chris Carl Miller says that ultimately it comes down to you. You may be the target of all this activity, but you are also its off switch. This article provides seven rules to keep yourself safe online. A few of these are worth citing. Rule number one is actively look for the information you want. Don't let it find you. The information that wants to find you isn't necessarily information you want to find. Tip three is guard against outrage. Outrage is easy to hijack and makes you particularly vulnerable to being manipulated online. What's more, your outrage can induce outrage in others, making it a particularly potent tool. Tip four, slow down online. Pause before sharing. Tip six is never rely on information sourced from social media. This is particularly the case for key pieces of information such as where 
polling booths are or whether you can vote. Finally, tip number seven is spend your attention wisely. It is both your most precious and coveted asset. Anyway, I've got more. I'm tempted to go into the briefing piece here that the the week published about the plague of robocalls, but I'm going to put that off. It's enough tech for one day. I do want to note, since that article mentioned what was going on in Myanmar, that uh, Aung San Suu Kyi is uh, seeing her star descend a bit. She appeared in the International Court of Justice in The Hague last week to defend her country's military against accusations of genocide. Myanmar's troops launched a brutal ethnic cleansing campaign against the country's Rohingya Muslim minority back in 2016. The ICJ case was brought by the African nation of Gambia on behalf of dozens of other Muslim countries. Suu Kyi won the 1991 Nobel Peace Prize for defying Myanmar's ruling junta and champion democracy. She since faced intense criticism over attacks on the Rohingya. She blamed Muslim militants for starting an internal armed conflict and denied that Myanmar's campaign had a genocidal intent. All right, let's get away from the strife here on planet Earth and get in our rocket ship and go back up into space, shall we? Oh, I'm speaking figuratively when I say that. I don't expect you to call up Elon Musk. The January 2020 issue of Sky and Telescope magazine has uh, a cover story that I think is worth looking at. It's titled, Do Microbes Hide Beneath Mars's Surface? This is kind of a hot topic in astrobiology and uh, requires us to look, I think, at some astrohydrology, a term I'm proud to say we just invented. Older than 55 years of age, you probably remember how, back in 1977, the world of biology was shocked by the discovery of an ecosystem here on Earth that was not in any way dependent upon capturing solar energy. No one had thought such a thing was possible, although looking back on it, I don't know why not. But anyway, back in February of 1977, an oceanographic expedition studying hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the Pacific made a discovery that changed biology forever, notes the magazine. Two kilometers deep, near a volcanic zone northeast of the Galapagos Islands, explorers on board the deep-sea ocean submersible Alvin found four dense agglomerations of clams, mussels, crabs, anemones, and other creatures. Some of them were living amid an alien-looking variety of tubular worms that vaguely resembled giant albino tulips. In awe, the researchers were baffled at how an ecosystem could survive at such a depth. Biologists had always assumed that sunlight was the energy source that powered all life on Earth, but they would soon discover it appears that this ecosystem was driven by the hydrogen sulfide being released from the vents. These giant tube worms had chemosynthetic bacteria inside them. They were able to produce sugars and produce all the energy they needed from the hydrogen sulfide. The article goes on to note that it didn't take long for scientists to realize that one of the places they should be looking for chemosynthetic life forms was under their own feet. At first, they piggybacked on commercial drilling and mining operations. Then later on, they explored caves and conducted their own drilling campaigns. By the early 1990s, researchers connected enough evidence to show that the Earth's crust is populated by a variety of microbes sustained by chemosynthetic organisms. This is the deep biosphere. It extends from a few meters down to several kilometers down. It's mainly populated by bacteria and other single-cell organisms called archaea, though recent research has also found fungal species and even animals 
such as nematode worms and tiny multicellular creatures called rotifers. The article notes that although life is pervasive underground, it's more austere than on the surface. The lack of sunlight and oxygen limits the energy supply. Subsurface organisms have slower metabolisms and are much less abundant than their surface counterparts. One gram of surface soil can host more than 10 billion microbes. One gram of oceanic crust, on the other hand, may contain only 10,000 cells. And continental crust is one-tenth of that. However, the volume of the deep biosphere is huge when compared to the surface world. So it now looks that the subsurface life here on planet Earth might represent as much as 10% of the Earth's total biomass. Here's some science that you may never have heard of because I think I'd never heard of it. Your article notes that in order to subsist, chemosynthetic organisms need a pair of inorganic compounds. One acts as an electron receiver, one acts as an electron donor. When an electron jumps from one donor to the receiver, there's a small energy release, which microbes can exploit. And there are many geological processes that can provide this kind of chemical pair. They note, for example, that one geological process that can produce this chemical pair is the decay of naturally occurring radioactive elements within rock, like uranium, thorium, potassium. As they disintegrate, they emit high-energy particles that can break water molecules. This process, radiolysis, releases huge quantities of hydrogen and reactive oxygen. Hydrogen is like a superfood for microorganisms. It's so eager to donate electrons that even poor receivers like sulfates can oxidize it, making it the ideal microbial fuel for the deep underground. I suppose a few biologists and geologists out there were aware of this, but boy, I sure wasn't. Another source of free hydrogen is serpentinization, a process in which iron-rich minerals react with water, filling the environment with leftover hydrogen that microbes can use. In some cases, serpentinization can also produce hydrocarbons such as methane, another favorite meal for many microorganisms. Now, serpentinization takes place all over the place on planet Earth. In fact, serpentine is California's official state rock. Of course, that I'm sure you knew. So, meanwhile, back on the planet Mars, we know that under the Martian surface, there's water and lots of it. And since presumably there's thorium, uranium, and potassium there, they're the same process of radiolysis must be going on. And therefore, there should be lots of superfood for any microorganisms that managed to evolve on Mars back in the day. Oh, and by the way, NASA's Mars Odyssey spacecraft has confirmed there's an abundance of radioactive elements like thorium, potassium, and uranium in the modern Martian crust. We also know there's permafrost everywhere on Mars, an abundance of water mixed in with the soil in the higher latitudes. In one case, at least, there clearly appears to be a lake underneath the Martian surface. So, man, we need to go there and start digging. Now, unfortunately, we have on Mars right now a space probe that's designed to hammer its way down into the Martian soil and see what it might find. Unfortunately, there's been a bit of a snafu. It's either hit a rock or something and is not able to drill, and NASA's still trying to troubleshoot and figure it out, and boy, I, I sure hope they can. But anyway, in answer to that question on the cover of Sky and Telescope, do microbes hide beneath Mars's surface? Well, the answer surely is maybe, but uh, we're not going to know until we send some prospectors up there to poke around, either robot or human. <laughs> 
You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week. Ha, ha, ha.